So, uh, welcome everybody to the last of this series. I hope um, I hope that um, you, we don't feel uh, together that we've explored the issue completely. We could probably do one of these for the next few years, one of these a, a week for the next few years, and uh, continue to to touch new areas in the subject. But tonight, um, the talk on time is called Time and the Ending of Suffering. And uh, again, um, I think uh, that um, we're going to kind of go out there, <laughs> as these talks have done in the past, um, for some uh, it's exactly the kind of Dharma that uh, some of you thrive on. For others, um, it's not quite practical enough in terms of my uh, my daily life. And um, but I, I think uh, that uh, as long as it um, just can be followed and listened to, and just if you reach a part that. Uh, you don't understand or what you don't really um, fully um, move with the talk, then just to sit and listen to it and just let the words impart whatever they impart without getting too confused or upset by them. If we can address your questions in the answer period, uh, we can do that. Or Sometimes it's good just to sit with the confusion. So, uh, tonight, uh, time in the Indian of suffering. A couple of years ago, I, I got uh, the book, um, A Brief uh, History of Time by Stephen Hawking, a physicist. Uh, and, uh, and although uh, I've I figured I could only understand about 10% of it. And I've had a lot of science in my background. He was way out there in his concepts and in his, um, in his dialogue around um, physics. I couldn't put the book down because there was something there that um, even though I my uh, science background didn't lend itself to understanding the words, he was approaching something in science that I think we approach also in Dharma practice. And uh, it had to do with, uh, with time. And it, he, just, he just turned the whole subject around. Uh, and um, he just... Um, presented it as if uh, time was on the edge of the mystery of all things. And uh, ever since that time, I've really appreci appreciated uh, the edges of science that we're approaching now in the modern day. Uh, because I really believe that those edges are um, 
are where the, the Dharma practice and the real world fuse into, I mean, the, the science, science and the real world fuse into Dharma and the world of truth. And then um, I also uh, started reading a book by American Indians called uh, Ceremonial Time. It's, uh, the subtitle is 15,000 Years on One Square Mile. And uh, the opening paragraph of the fourth chapter here, I just like to read a little bit. <clears throat> Big Tree and Running Bear do not accept any one of the chronologies that I have just set down. They would tell me that their people had been here always or forever. Running Bear in particular had a way of stating this that I used to find far more meaningful than his verbal expressions. We have been here, he would say, and then he would drop his words and roll his right hand over and over in a circular pattern, extending, her, extending his arms outward as he did so. The gesture was time. It said there is no time, that time goes backwards on occasions, forwards on others, that it stalls out, that it skips around in a circle to catch you from behind. It is not now or then or to come. It simply is. I like things like that. It stirs the pot. I think, what does that mean? What, is all, what does all that mean, you see? And if you do much uh, research in the literature of, um, of meditation, you'll eventually come upon stories of people uh, who have psychic powers. And some of these people can use their psychic powers to foretell time. Talk about things that are about to come. Now if time were linear, that is moment after moment, year after year, in some kind of abstract line, how would it be possible to know what the future entailed? But if that's just the way and mechanism of thought, you see, thought is linear. And maybe knowing and understanding thought to be linear creates the feeling that time is also linear. That there is a past that we have lived through and a future that is yet to come. And a present that somehow is in between those two time frames. And I think as our practice deepens, as we begin to understand how it is that the past arises within our mind and how it is that the future is projected from this time frame, we begin to see, as we have talked about in the previous weeks here together, that it really is all happening now. That all of that, all of that time, all of that time, it simply is.
that it skips around in a circle to catch you from behind. It is not now or then or to come. It simply is. So the past is the present. The future is the present. And that there's really no escaping the present moment. That it's not um, the isolated present that is against the rock of past and the hard place of the future. But it's much more inclusive than that. And that really, in fact, it's the ground on which all things happen and can only happen. And therefore, we can never lose the present moment. We can just lose our perception of the present moment by being lost in thought. But the ground is there regardless of whether we're paying attention to it or not. And that ground is not something we have to remind ourselves to come back to because there's no way to lose it. But many of us keep confirming the knot of time within us. And I think it's important to understand probably when we were very young, uh, if, when I look at uh, very young infants, I get the feeling that um, there's a consciousness there that's very located in the present. That they're not, you don't see them staring off blankly in thought. And that they're probably, they're just being human beings. Sometimes they cry, sometimes they laugh. Sometimes they have an enormous amount of affection. Where does that come from? And somehow, in a confused kind of way, I think, as we as parents and uh, adults interact with the children, they misplace that present, that home base, let's call it, for the gains of social approval. And I think a child very naturally, organically, has to go through an ego development or they wouldn't be of much use, really. They really couldn't find their way around. And in that ego development, they get lost in those sidelines and that side, those avenues of thought. And many of them never find their way back home. And if we look at our own history, your and my history, there are moments that most of us can bring to mind in which, we, in which there is a knot of time in which emotionally and physically, psychologically, 
our whole thought is is somehow concentrated around particular moments in time, hardened moments of time, in which we lost our ground. And maybe through trauma or abuse, we got lost in the circumstances of the thoughts that were happening at that point and condensed it within our body, within ourselves. And now, as we begin to approach it as adult, we still carry these moments, these knots of time around with us. And we do everything to try to avoid them. But I think it is through untying these knots of time, loosening these knots of time, addressing these moments, that we can rediscover the fulfillment of the childhood consciousness to come back again. And it isn't through working them out, you see? I mean, it, if we have been together these last three weeks, we begin to understand that you can't use time to extract yourself from time. How can we do that? That just makes the knot tighter. And to work out my problems in some kind of linear fashion strengthens the hold that time has on me as I go through the process of that. That something radically different must happen. And if I bring awareness, attention to those knots without any sense of trying to manipulate them or waiting for them to be gone or some time strategy in relationship to them, I'll endure them. I'll put up with this so that eventually it'll be gone and then I'll be happy. You see, that's a strategy in time, right? But if I just bring my attention to them, I'm bringing the timeless to time. My strategy is not setting out with a goal of what I want to do with these things. If I set a goal, I'm retying the knot in a different kind of configuration again around time, right? Because my goal is that is, this is where I am and this is where I want to be, full of expectations about this particular problem I have. If I just come to it with bare attention, adding nothing else to it, but my ability to learn and observe, just seeing, not with the strategy of learning, but just seeing itself as a learning, then the knot loosens. Then the strategy is that I'm meeting the time with the timeless. 
and because all of that is taking place on the ground that is now, right? How can we meet the now? Remember we talked about the ground, the fundamental, everything is happening out of the now. It cannot happen out of the then, or it wouldn't be happening. It's happening out of now. We have to meet the now on its own terms. We have to meet the now not with time consideration of extracting some interpretation away from this moment, but right now. So we can bring nothing to it. And awareness has that ability to bring nothing to. It just reveals. That's all it does. It just reveals. It doesn't interpret. It doesn't color. It doesn't prejudice or opinionate. It just reveals. And therefore it can be trusted. So I ask you to look at the way you sit. Sitting for a moment of 45 minutes is a moment in which we're taking ourselves out of time. We've released all of ourselves from the responsibility of having to do anything. Right? You're not, you don't have to be a parent. You don't have to be a friend. You don't have to chit-chat. You don't have to be social. You just sit. We've taken ourselves out of time. That's what the beauty of the form of meditation allows. We're not doing anything. Watch what happens when we just try to sit. When we just bring presence to ourselves as we sit. Are we, do we have a strategy about our spiritual growth? Do we okay. Do we know all about it? Do we know exactly why we're sitting? Do we have a belief system that colors our sitting and just waits for the next experience to confirm the path we're on? Or can we meet the timelessness of the form of sitting with the timeless quality of just bare attention? Do we add time to the sitting? Do we have goals and expectations about where our sitting will lead us and what will we become when we're enlightened? Or can we just be present with it, adding nothing to it, adding nothing to the timeless, adding nothing to the moment except bear attention. Anything else is a movement in time beyond bear attention. Do you see? So the timelessness of the sitting must be met with the only thing we have which is timeless and that is our bare attention, our awareness. Anything else is a coloration or a movement or a distortion of that present. All we want to do is have the present reveal itself. 
This paradox is the paradox of Zen. There's a um, famous Zen story. about, uh, I think it's, it's Basho, and um, his teacher, uh, Basho, was sitting in very formal zazen. And um, his teacher uh, came up to him and looked at him, and uh, he was sitting very, very strong, forceful zazen. So the teacher looks at him and says, um, hmm, lays down with a towel in front, uh, there's some tile, Puts, takes a towel and starts polishing this tile. Basho sits and opens his eyes a little bit and sees what his teacher is doing. He can't quite figure out why his teacher is doing that. And he finally gets frustrated and says, Master, why are you polishing that tile? Why are, you, why are you doing that? And the master says, well, I'm trying to make it into a diamond. And uh, Basho says, you can do that for a hundred years, and you're not going to make it into a diamond. And his teacher says, you can sit for a hundred years, and you're not going to be any more pure than you are now. What, do, what we really want is to be uninfluenced by time. That's what our heart seeks. That's the consciousness of the infant. That's the home base. To be uninfluenced by time. But we keep building strategies around that. We're getting there. We use time to take us out of time. And there is no strategy which will take us out of time. None. No form, no method. Nothing. We can do nothing. The Buddha said, I teach only one thing. I, he said he, he taught the ending of suffering. And many of us who have practiced 5, 10, 15, 20 years or more, well, we've seen some value to the practice. We're a little happier, more spacious, a little more clarity a little more peace, quietude in our lives, perhaps steadier. All of that's in time. All of that's polishing the tile. And many people get very frustrated because their strategies of working with their meditation haven't borne the ultimate fruit which is offered to meditation students very early on in the form of enlightenment or the absolute truth. 
And after 20 years of diligent sitting, they can feel the strategies having worked in terms of the quietude, a little more spaciousness, a little more depth of quiet. But where is that other? Where is that moment of being uninfluenced by time? It doesn't mean that there isn't value to those qualities. There certainly are. There is an enormous value. And there is a growing sense of happiness. But it is not the ending of suffering. It's the tapering of suffering. And this tapering of suffering will never end. Like to revisit that scene with Maharaji or Maharaj, Nisargadatta Maharaj in India that I spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Just to take you back into that situation with the full sense of where I was coming from. First of all, I was wearing monk's robes, my strategy. Having sat thousands of hours on the cushion, years really, head shaved, humble, (laughs) and he played with me. He set me in front of him and he engaged me as if what I was saying was, he kept going, Do you hear this? (laughs) Say more. Do you all hear this? (laughs) Right in front of him, he would sit me. And then, after two or three days of that, when I arrogantly came in and just plopped down in front of him because I'm the one, I'm the show, He told me to get back in the back of the room and not to open my mouth until I could say something wise. He said that what I had been giving him was meaningless jabber. And sometimes I would raise my hand and try to expound on something that I had seen in my meditation or some quality And he would shake his head and just tell me to shut up. And said, I told you not to say anything unless you could say something wise. When I left him, after uh, two or three weeks meeting uh, twice a day, um, I tried to offer him uh, some money. $50 or something that I I don't remember how much. And his, one of his students, he was upstairs and I was down and I gave him some money and he went up uh, 
and $50 or $100 or however much I offered is an extraordinary amount of money in India. And he came down and said, uh, Maharaj says um, he wants everything or nothing. And he didn't take my money. <laughs> the greater teaching. So what we bring to meditation is not a light thing. It affirms our hold on time. It affirms our orientation to time. I remember sitting in front of a teacher and saying, <clears throat> you know, I have this problem. And the teacher said, oh, that's just your view. And I said, no, no, it's not my view. I have a problem. You've got to listen to this problem. He says, no, that's your view. It's just your view that you have a problem. And finally getting so frustrated, I got up and left the interview because the teacher wasn't listening to me. In the timelessness, is the dissipation of problems, is the ending of suffering. That which is finds its feet on the ground that we live on. It rests on not the isolated, impoverished moment of now, but the infinite moment of now. I remember I, again, uh, was practicing quite diligently, working very hard. And one of my Vipassana teachers um, said, um, this was during a month-long course, said, Rodney, um, I want you to stop trying. And I had no idea what that meant. I said to him, well, it feels a little bit like I'm out on a boat in the middle of the water. I've paddled myself out in the middle of a lake and now you're asking me to throw in my oars in the water. And he says, I want you to stop trying. And it took me the other two weeks of that month to understand what he was trying to get at. It's not about hard labor. Many of us feel we have to go through hard labor to do penance, to atone for the ill will, Ill will that we give ourselves. It's not about effort. You see? Effort is still in movement towards something. If it were that easy, there would be an enormous abundance of wise people. 
if it were just so simple of sitting months or years at an end, then everybody with that kind of resolve, that sort of hardness of, and there are many, many people who have that. But it's not that. The whole thing is turned on its head. People ask me, why don't you speak of enlightenment? What are you going to say about it? Try to get there? So when we come to that sense of which, in which effort ends, in which every strategy that we have placed on our spiritual lives has led to a growing sense of frustration, then one of two things happens. Either we put up with the fact that this is an endless process and I'm never going to be over it or maybe some incarnation from now I will find my end of suffering. We think of it in terms of, well, it's not this lifetime, you know, it must be... We just throw it out there. I wonder how many lifetimes we've thought about that. You know, I think it's grace the fact that we don't remember our previous lives. Can you imagine <laughs> the number of lifetimes we must have set together, probably together, all of us, and strategized about this very thing? So it's either that we project, either we quit and get disgusted and get cynical, give up, it, give the whole thing up, strategize, or we prolong the strategy, or we give up all hope for enlightenment. We give up all hope for the timeless. We give up all strategies in relationship to our meditation, which is not discouragement, which is not denial, it's not frustration or resignation. It is coming to the end of time. Now, we can come back into it with a whole different maturity. And when we look around, what do we see? We see that everything is time. As someone said last week, I've been watching myself all this week and everything is time. Everything I do is of time. All desire, right, is time. I wish that. Out there somewhere. All fear and resistance is time. I'm afraid this is going to happen. 
All movement, all psychological movement is time. I can't go this way because I see I'm creating more time. And time is never going to end itself. I can't go back the other way because what does that give me? That just gives me another reaction in the opposite direction to time itself as well. Any attempt to find a solution in time, all strategies are of time. We cannot extricate ourselves from suffering because to do so we just generate more time. And more time affirms our suffering. There's a story that makes its rounds in India. It's a man, he goes to a doctor because he thinks he has a flea in his head. He says, doctor, you're going to have to look in my ears because there's a flea that's crawling all over my head. And the doctor says, you're crazy, get out of here. And the man, convinced that he has a flea in his head, goes to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor. Every doctor tells him he's crazy to, to get out of the examining room. Finally, one doctor says, yeah, you're right, you have a flea in your head. He pours a glass of water and he says to this man, drink this. Now when you drink this, one of two things will happen. Either it will kill you, or it will kill the flea. The man said, I guess I don't have a flea in my head. That's meditation. We perceive a problem, and we strategize going to teacher after teacher after form and method to solve our problem. But the problem has been and always will be completely imaginary because it's completely of time. And to end the problem, we put the glass down. This is the Zen teachings of Huang Po. I just want to read a paragraph to you of the Huang Po talks Dharma from the timeless. He calls that ground that we stand on pure mind. This pure mind, the source of everything, shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But the people of the world do not awake to it, regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, do they, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of the source substance. 
If they would only eliminate all conceptual thought in a flash, the source substance would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. Therefore, if you students of the way seek to progress through seeing, hearing, feeling, and knowing, when you are deprived of your perceptions, your way to mind will be cut off and you will find nowhere to enter. Only realize through real mind, the real mind is expressed in those perceptions. It neither forms part of them nor is separate from them. You should not start reasoning from those perceptions nor allow them to give rise to conceptual thought. Nor should you seek the one mind apart from them or abandon them in your pursuit of the Dharma. Do not keep them nor abandon them nor dwell in them nor hold on to them. Above, below, and around you all is spontaneously existing for there is nowhere that is outside the one mind. So to step out of time is not to step somewhere else. It is to end time. There are no strategies for life, for awakening. There's just living. And when the Zen master answers his koan by picking up his glass of tea and putting it back down, he is saying that there is only living. And the only thing that we can bring to living is our willingness to understand it and to learn from it and to learn how time constricts that, holds us. And when we're through with the bounds of time, with the binding of time, then everything is spontaneously living. Above, below, around, all things are truly the one mind. Could we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.